Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School, where my guests describe the big life lessons they've learned outside the classroom. My guest today is Eileen Murray, who is a remarkable person, co-ran Bridgewater for a number of years, has had senior positions at other major financial firms like Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse, and also has a fascinating life story. So I'm delighted to have her here. For those of you that are enjoying these podcasts, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, and you can get more back episodes on my website, paulpodolsky.com. So Eileen, welcome. Let's begin with who you are, how you grew up, how you came to this industry. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me today, and it's a pleasure to talk with you. Who I am, I'm still figuring out, which you would think by this point in time I would know it, but I'm still learning about myself and others, which is terrific. My beginning, I grew up in housing projects in in Upper Manhattan, Dykeman Street Housing Projects, which was a wonderful place to grow up. Lived there with my parents. I have five brothers and three sisters. It was a pretty small apartment. In hindsight, it was very small, but it was so full of love. I I have siblings who tell me we were poor when we were growing up, and candidly, I never knew that. I, I just didn't know it. My mother was educated through eighth grade, although she read all the time. She worked in a bakery, and then she worked at where many young Irish girls worked at, Schraff's, which was an ice cream place. Well, my mom got really lucky when she first came to this country She wasn't hired by the phone company because she had a brogue. Years later, she worked for the phone company. She worked for them for 30 years. So, yeah, she was on an operator's salary. She never did any of the bills or the checking. My mother was just not that way. (laughs) And I was, like, you know, pretty worried about everything. I was working three jobs. And my mother used to tell me, why are you worried about things? Everything will work out. She met my dad when she was 17 and they got married and he went off to war and then he came back. And until the day my mother died, she would tell us, my mother was young when my dad passed. She had younger children, me and my my three younger siblings. And I used to tell her, why don't you get a partner? Why don't you meet someone? She said, listen, Eileen, if you can get a deaf mute, I'd be happy to remarry. (laughs) But the reality is your dad was really top-notch. There's no one that could replace him. Mm. And I would, I would find her sometimes, she kept some of his clothes. And I don't think she ever knew we saw her doing this. And sometimes she would smell them to kind of bring him back. So they, they and, and I read this note he wrote her from, I think he was in Germany, I'm not sure. But it, he wrote this note that, you know, it was around Christmas time. And he said, this is the best card I could find and how much he missed her and so on and so forth. It was just so touching. And she kept it on her, her dresser till she died this August. And it was just nice to hear someone be so tight with someone else. It was kind of great. My eldest sister is 20 years older than my youngest brother. And my mother would kill me if I didn't say that we're from the same parents. It was kind of a place where everybody had a chip in, in, in my house. One of the biggest learning moments for me all the time was, you know, we had one bathroom and being first online in the bathroom wasn't good enough. Like you had to get there really early because the older siblings would kind of whack you to the back, even if you were first online. So there wasn't this politeness about where one stood online. And like any family, everybody had a pitch in and the girls were treated the same as the boys. That was all terrific. What I remember most is 
people ask me, what'd you learn when you, when you grew up? I, I have to say what I didn't learn. I didn't learn that gender was important. I didn't learn that color was important. I didn't learn that religion was important. I did learn that it was important being an Irish American because my mother was so focused on being Irish. But in hindsight, like where could I go to experience Greece, Italy, Ethiopia, Cuba, France, Germany, with people, Judaism, Catholicism, Buddhism, where, where could I go to? What vacation could I take to experience all of that? I have a sister who's about five years older than me, and she is the reason for my success. Because when you come from a family of nine, if you get in an argument, and unless someone draws blood, your parents really don't butt in, particularly once they get down to number six, seven, eight, and nine. And my older sister was a bully. And so I used to remember there used to be this show called Dennis the Menace. Mm. It was on the same time as Walt Disney on Sunday nights. And I loved Walt Disney and my sister loved Dennis the Menace. And my mother would let us take turns. And my sister would be dishonest about whose turn it was. And so what I found out was that if I said I wanted to do what she wanted to do, or I said I, if I said I wanted to watch Dennis the Menace, she wanted to watch Walt Disney. So at a very young age... I learned a little bit about the psychic of a bully. <laughs> I should thank her. I remember coming home one night, this guy, Augie, who lived down the hall from us. What happened was in these city projects was drugs started coming into the cities. What years was that? 75 to maybe 78. But they came in earlier, probably a little bit earlier. But yeah, they probably came in probably starting when I started in high school. So they probably came in in 73. But, you know, it progressively got worse. And so I come in from the Grand Union and poor Augie is laying on the floor, you know, on the first floor. He was shot in the head. His pockets were pulled out. And, you know, it turned out someone stole five bucks from him. That's that's all he had on to his name. So we moved up to Riverdale after that. I don't think I would have ever moved out of that place had drugs not come to the neighborhood and guns. I got into Yale and I got into Manhattan College and I looked at even with whatever it was of the day, you know, aid, what I would pay Yale and what I would pay Manhattan College. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like I have got to go to Manhattan College. I actually wanted to be an English lit teacher. So I go in, Paul, and I'm looking at these classes and it says English literature teachers. They were making fifty four hundred dollars a year uh-huh. and accountants were making 13. So I said, wow, I'm going to be an accountant. And, you know, when I tell that story, people say, that's terrible. Didn't you give it more thought? And I was like, no, no, (laughs) we needed money. money. I'm not embarrassed to say, you know, I I can't say I do everything for money now, but it was important to have money then. So I heard stories sometimes, I don't know, from you or somebody else about gambling, you gambling, like card games early on. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I uh, here's what happened. When my dad passed away, we really didn't have much money. And the money I made in the Grand Union, I gave to my mother to help her out. So my sister Maureen, who's five years older than me, wouldn't gamble two cents. She won't even buy a lottery ticket. I, on the other hand, used to play cards with my dad all the time and really valued the prospect of doubling my money. So I said to her, I said to her, Maureen, listen. We should go up to P&K's. They had an after-hour bar, 234. What's P&K, a bar? It's a bar okay. that had like this after-hours thing. 
How old are you at this age? I'm probably 19. And I said, you know, listen, I have 60 bucks. We need to have a great dinner and get the younger kids what they want for Christmas, about 250 bucks. So I think we go up there, you know, let's just roll the dice, you know, play some cards, see if we can make the money. But once we get as much money as we need, I'm going to give you 10 bucks. You call a cab, then we're out of there because this is not the place for us to hang out. She's like, I don't want to go. This is a waste of money. You're throwing your money away. I can't believe this, blah, 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 blah. So anyways, we go up there. So I'm up to like 280 bucks now and I'm kicking her like, you know, I'm kicking her, get the goddamn cab, you know? And she's like, we're doing great. Let's keep going. So she finally got the joke and we got out of there and it was a wonderful Christmas. So I go to Manhattan College. I go into accounting. I got to say, I really didn't like accounting. I really Mm -hmm. didn't. But it gave me an opportunity to work for Pete Marwick, which was a terrific opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to go to many different companies. That's when I started to see a little bit more that people didn't necessarily always pick people on meritocracy, but I chalked it up to maybe they didn't know what people did because they were so busy. You work in a, in a company like a Pete Marwick and you'd be on all these different audits and depending upon how powerful a particular partner was, and who he liked, that's who, who did best. And a lot of times, you know, I remember it was a, an intern and they took us to one of these clubs where it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, they were like, I don't know if you remember, but in, there was a time when like they had people dancing in cages at some of these places. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was looking at these women dancing in these cages. I was like, what a crappy job that must be, you know? I'm still like kind of not conscious of what's going on because I'm focused at this dinner on, you know, when I used to eat dinner, it would be one fork, one knife. I go to the first time in my life to this restaurant and everything's beautifully laid out. And I'm like, oh, I better watch everybody. I don't even know what to use here. When I was at Pete Marwick, I had been there for, I think, four years. And I was one of the people that was still there that had some of the most most experience in financial services. Because that's how quickly people were being pulled out of financial services. I think I was all of 26 I went to Morgan Stanley, and it was before they were public. I worked on them going public. How many people were there when you joined? 2,000 global. So a very small firm at that point. Oh, very small. And, you know, really a wonderful place in terms of people training you more as uh, like an assistant kind of training. Like you'd be in a little group, and, you know, there'd be people who would tell you what to do and how to do it better. But it was very collegial. I was there for 18 years, and... I went through the ranks there. Uh, it took me forever to make VP. And then it took me forever to make MD. And then my career kind of took off. And I think it did, Paul, because I was so focused on just doing my job. I really didn't focus on any kind of self-promotion. I thought some people actually almost had, they should just have a little a band behind them, given the parade they made about the stuff they were doing. It was kind of almost laughable. That said, there were some people that bought that nonsense, so so maybe they weren't so stupid. I was the controller there. That was tough for me. I was, was pretty young when I first got that job, and I really thought I had to know everything. And so I'd work like day and night, weekends, you name it, for like the first six months. I mean, I was exhausted. And my family said, listen, you should, you know, just move into Morgan Stanley. Like, you know, don't even bother with us. And so I knew I had to make a change. And so I started asking people for help. Mm -hmm. And 
it was like a ton of bricks was lifted off of my shoulders. When I went to Morgan Stanley, I had never been further than Jersey except for one weekend down in Florida. Mm. So traveling to Japan, traveling to the UK, I remember the first time I went to the UK, I was with a, with a colleague who worked for me actually. And we were staying at the Churchill and at the time, it must have been, it was early 80s. I went down into the bar to meet my colleague. And this guy says to me, Madam, uh, ladies are not allowed in the in the bar area without being escorted. I was like, I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? And he wow. said, Madam, I assure you, I am not kidding you. <laughs> so it's like, wow, I, I can't wait to get back home. This is like ridiculous. And so... <laughs> I shouldn't say that. There's so many other wonderful things in London, but that just stuck out in my mind that what a knucklehead I was to not have any sense of that. So then I go to Japan a couple of years later. I'm the fixed income controller. And I get there, Paul, and like everybody in senior positions are Americans or people from England. Uh So from my area, I'm like, I don't think this makes any sense. So I basically pulled back the Americans and I put the Japanese in charge. And people told me I was making a big mistake. And I told these two guys, listen, if you guys pull some of the stuff these guys tell me you're going to do, like not tell me what's going on, none of us are going to be here. So don't pull that on me. And they never did. I've been friends with them since. When I became controller, I think 10% of the senior positions were held by women. And when I left the position, it was 50%. And I never focused on having a diversity program or we all just focused on who's the best person for the job. Mm. And people agreed with it, like by, by just focusing on, okay, who, who would be the best at this or that? Maybe people thought differently, but it, it was an easy way to get things done. So I left Morgan Stanley after nine 11. It was after the Dean Witter merger. And candidly, I, um, there were people who were focused on, how we could expand certain parts of our business on day two of 9-11, 9-12, versus where were people's families, et cetera. And I just kind of looked at the people that were acting that way, and I just realized I don't want to work with these people. On 9-11, those, those couple of days, I mean... I remember it so vividly. Me too. I went from building to building to make sure it was empty, which was stupid of me. I remember running into this young woman in 750 Avenue of the Americas. Where, you, where were you? Where was your office? I was initially in 1585, but I wanted to check the buildings to make sure people left. And so she had gotten engaged and her fiance worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. And the folks from Cantor Fitzgerald were on the top. And I just remember listening to her and her saying, do you think he's okay? And I was like, yeah, I guess he's okay. I just wanted to get her out of the building. But yeah. You know, I could go story after story, as I'm sure you and many people who were there could. And so for people to be focused on anything other than the people we had in one of the towers Mm -hmm. struck me. And and to also get the financial systems back up and running. Right. Any other focus to me seemed antithetical to my way of being. And so I decided to leave. And I'm glad I left. Yep. I went to Credit Suisse. That was a great experience. You know, I remember my first meeting there, I went into this room. There were like, I don't know, the management committee and their department heads, whatever. There was like 33 guys and me. (laughs) The person who was the CFO at the time said, how does it feel to be the only woman in the room? And I didn't say this to him, but I was thinking, what an 
idiotic question, but right. my answer to him was, well, there's no line to the ladies' room. I'm going to work on making sure we, we get one. And I remember that, you know, I went down in my beautiful suit that I spent all my money on. And I don't know why the hell they didn't tell me to dress differently. But anyways, this guy was giving me a hard time about, I wasn't the only woman down there. And about, you know, oh, as you know, is your skirt going to get dirty? And I looked at him and I said, you know, you would look awfully good in a skirt. And I have a sense that you want to wear one. And that's why you're saying this. Everyone laughed at him. He left me completely alone. And, you know, I think that's from growing up with so many siblings. You got to come back or, you know. Yeah. I was very technical early in my career. So when I was a fixed income controller, I was very focused on valuations, swaps, et cetera, et cetera. I was really focused on the technicalities of the business. You know, and swap transactions, we're talking back in, you know, 84 when swap transaction had six, seven, 800 basis points on a vanilla generic interest rate swap, you know, and we'd chart them out on the board because they were so complicated and tie them to a bond to swap, you know, fixed for floating. And, you know, this was before ISDA, et cetera. So I was, you know, very focused on the technical piece. I really was pretty introverted and just did my job. But I really cared about the people that worked for me and I cared about their promotion and were they getting good experiences and were they happy? And so when they made me controller, I said, oh, my gosh, I don't know investment, the investment banking division that well. I don't know equity that well. And I said, well, we're not picking you because, you know, fixed income. We're picking you because you are good at retaining and developing people. And I was like, I never really thought of it that way. But they were right. I was good at that. I also had no problem with people making mistakes if I knew about them. And I would never throw anyone under the bus. It was, if, if, if something happened on my watch, it was me. And I worked for people who were like, well, it wasn't really you, Eileen. It was like, no, no, no. As far as you're concerned, it's me. And so I used to watch some managers like throw people under the bus, Paul, when they made a mistake. And if they worked for me, I wouldn't tolerate that. I remember when I first went to Credit Suisse, I was over in London. It was a big tech issue. And I get a call from the head of technology, and he's telling me why it's these three young people's fault. So I said, well, how long have they been with the firm? They were at the firm like four and five years. Have they done anything differently? No, they did exactly what they always do. And I said, well, why aren't we firing you? Why, why are you telling me to fire them? I think you would find from people, they would say that I was tough but fair. Mm. I think it's important for managers to take accountability for what their people do and to take accountability for their careers and development and to give mm. them opportunities. That's why you're a manager. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people didn't get that book or that joke, and they still don't get the joke. I've come from a neighborhood where some people died of drug overdoses in the right. end. But the people that, that were successful were really successful. And a lot of them, like Lloyd Blankfein comes from a projects. Right. Uh, Soda Meyer comes from a projects. There's a resiliency I think you learn or you have from these environments that if you, if you make it out, I think you have a pretty good shot of doing well. Now, what's working against you? Of course, there's this notion of, oh my God, I don't know what forks and knives to use at the table. I don't have exactly, I remember when I first started working in public accounting, I didn't, I couldn't afford a suit jacket. And, you know, someone said, this woman came to me and said, you know, to differentiate you from the secretaries, you really need to have a suit. 
Uh, fortunately, she worked for me years later, and I have to say I was a, I have a little bit of a addictive streak in me. <laughs> but anyways, my point is there's baggage you have coming from there, right? You don't feel as entitled. You don't feel like you know the right things to say. When you go on vacation, you're going on a very different vacation than the folks you're working with. But at the end of the day, I think that resiliency coupled with curiosity leads you to understand that nobody's better than anybody else. We all came in this world the same way. We're all going out the same way. So can't we make it easier for each other? So then Bridgewater, where we each overlapped, I don't know how much you you want to talk about that and how much you don't, but I'm sure a lot of people would be fascinated with this experience. How'd you come to the firm? What was it like? Honestly, I never heard of Bridgewater, you know, whatever. So I said, okay. So I go to meet Ray and uh, he was asking me, did my mother work? And didn't that make me upset? And I was like, no, of course it didn't make me upset. My mother needed to work because we needed money. So I found Ray interesting a very different kind of interview. So that was that. And then I come home that day. I look at my younger sister says, I lean two different shoes on. I go, Oh my God, you're right. I had an interview today. She goes, Oh my God, they're never going to hire you. I said, let me tell you the guy I met. I don't think he knows my <laughs> shoes, but they were, Paul, they were both black and early in the morning. I swear anyone could make this mistake. But anyways, Ray said, come back and talk to Bridgewater after the holiday. So I go up to talk to the people at Bridgewater. They bring me in this room and they're probing, I never heard of this term before, the guy who's running operations. And this woman, Katina Stefanova, who I love, she's a, she's a wonderful young woman. She says, good morning. Hello, my name is Katina. And she's like, John, why did you do X, Y, and Z? I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Where am I? You know, then Ray's on it. Greg's on it. And I'm like, I can't wait to get out of here. I hope the doors aren't locked in this place. So I get out and I'm like, oh, my God. I was like shocked. So I called Ray and said, listen, I really don't want to work there. <laughs> this is not the place for me. He's like, well, would you, you said you'd help me with this one thing. Will you? Uh, and I said, sure. I, I, it was I don't know, doing a collateral system. And then what I learned is, for the most part, people were that way to kind of help each other through their strengths and weaknesses. I really started to get an attachment to a lot of the younger people. And there was a lot of energy. And it reminded me of Morgan Stanley in some ways when I was younger. What I never agreed with is, and I felt that it was important that giving people feedback, how you give feedback matters, which I know mm. most people at Bridgewater will tell me it shouldn't. I think it really does. Mm. And I think how you give someone feedback, how you train and develop them can make the difference between making someone incredibly successful or making someone a very sad person. Mm -hmm. So having said all of that, my time at Bridgewater I really liked it in terms of I worked with so many good people who I hope till they put pennies in my, my eyes. And like most places, I worked with some people, you know, if I don't see them again, I won't be too unhappy. Mm -hmm. I'm not a believer in pain plus reflection equals progress as a general matter. I think, of course, if you're in war or if you're, you know, doing something that's highly stressful, but I don't think that should be the day-to-day -day way of doing things. But I do believe in being honest with people, candid, transparent. I'll tell you, when I got promoted at Bridgewater to co-CEO, the first time Ray sent me an email that, oh, by the way, no, excuse me. They sent me a tape of a meeting with him and David and Greg. And they were like, oh, yeah, Eileen should be one of the co-CEOs. That would not happen in any other place I worked in. 
and I don't mean to belittle anybody, but I think that at, like at other places I was at, if you were, you know, working hard gets you to where you need to get to in terms of what it is you do. What was different for me at Bridgewater is I was focused on areas that weren't my area of expertise. Quite candidly, I'm a financial person by background. And everyone always thought that I was an ops and tech person, which I've never been. But I figured, well, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to keep correcting people because I keep saying it. But I don't think it was dramatically different, but maybe it was. I've been working for 40 years. I don't know how many weeks that is or days. And, you know, every day you just get up and you try to do a better job than the day before. And I think if you're in a place that recognizes that, great. And I also think, Paul, some of it's luck. Right place, right time. And the other other thing I appreciated about Bridgewater, which I really loved about Morgan Stanley and working for John, is the ability to do things out of the box. In terms of of advice for people, and I'm going to say something that's going to sound trite, but I really mean it. I think treating people the way you'd like to be treated, for real, is really something that is a key to most people's success in life. And I can't tell you how many people say that, but they really they really can't really honestly mean it. Being candid with people, treating people like how you'd be treat like to be treated. And then thirdly, if you are a leader slash manager, make that person your business to do as well as you'd like your daughter or son or brother or sister to do. And I really mean that sincerely. And I know that sounds like, you know, pablum, but I, I think it's just for me, it's been my key to success. I don't have any success in my life that I've ever accomplished on my own. I can't think of one. And two, I have been successful at work by mining and being maniacally focused on differences of opinion and bringing that together. So I can't tell you how many times people would say, why do you want that person on your team? They're a pain in the neck. And it's like, <laughs> I know, I know. But trust me, over the long haul, it worked well. My question for you is, if someone said, Paul, what do you consider to be success and how successful are you? What would your answer be to that today? Mm, That's such a deep question. So first of all, how do you define success? I think is really important. And then uh, what are the keys for it? So I think that the, the key success for life is actually a balanced life. I don't think that it's making a ton of money or being famous or... I think that it's really having a balance of these things. And I don't think that people recognize that enough, that this remarkable, remarkable thing to be alive at this moment in time, but there's many different aspects to that. There is your close relationships. There is your health. There is taking the time to experience different parts of the world. There's your career. There's financial success. And so I think really thinking about things holistically is critical for that. I had one guest on the show. He said something so fascinating to me. He said he had read a biography of Tiger Woods or some show about him or something. He said, Tiger Woods is like the greatest golfer in the history of golf. And he said, in every other aspect of Tiger Woods' life is awful. And he said, I never guessed it. I never wanted to be Tiger Woods. And I thought that that was really useful for me, that I I really look at those those types of things. That's what I what I valued. And I had parents, unfortunately, who had health issues, and one of them passed quite early. And so I was always aware from early on of how brief everything could be, that somebody looks fit together, and then in a very short period of time, poof, they're gone. 
And that is yeah. the nature of being alive. And so I look at that Steve Jobs speech that he gave at Stanford a lot, where he said, knowing that you're going to be dead as soon is, is one of the best ways of decide, making a decision about what's important, what's not. I really believe in that. On the second thing in terms of how you are successful, also something that they don't really teach in school, but I think is so important is people really are wired differently. So I think being aware of what specifically anybody can do that is uniquely great is unbelievably important because that's what their contribution is to the team. And then being very thoughtful with what other people do on the team. That's really what creates the the things that are powerful dynamic. So if you think about a, a jazz band or something like that, those people have very different styles and things they bring to it. And by the way, it can change over time. You were talking about your own career, what made you really fantastic when you were early on versus when you were at a more mature stage of your career. So that notion of basically, you know, they say, know thyself, it's not an easy thing to do. You were saying you're still wrestling with it. I'm still wrestling with it. But being aware that that's a thing, I think is critical. And then thinking about how you interact with other people and what their thing is. That other, you know, being focused on others is critical. You know, I've tried to teach it to my kids. It's tough. I've tried to follow it myself. It's tough. And I look at the people who have succeeded in those realms, and they are like that. They're aware of what their sort of special spark is. And I think that we're, we're each given that thing. And I found actually in the show, I'm giving a wordy answer, but asking people to talk about their lives, you can hear it. They each bring such different perspectives, but it's very, very rich. What you just said comes through in your book, which uh, I think anybody who wants to read a great book should read, read the book you wrote. And uh, you. I, what you just said, I don't think I could have said it better. And, and your notion about everybody having something different and how do we light each other's spark is, is a really powerful message for people to take away. And that message, my point is, comes through to me in your book. So thank you for sharing that through the book. Oh, wonderful. Great. Well, thank you, Eileen, for making time. I'm sure a lot of people will you know, be fascinated to hear this. Thank you, my friend. And I hope to see you again soon.